Um, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, as you know, we, we talked about this last year. Every year we take um, the, the, the middle weeks of January, and never do they fall on the same Sunday except somehow this weekend they do. Uh, Martin Luther King is normally the weekend before, which is why last week we looked at um, racism, and we looked at what the Bible has to say about that. And today we are looking at sanctity of life. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 4. That is where we will be. As Christians, we believe that God is the author of all life. We believe that every person is made in the image of God and thus has intrinsic value. We believe that life begins in the womb because we believe uh, that God is the one who forms the life, who gives life at conception. And thus, we believe that every act of abortion is ultimately the killing of an unborn child made in the image of God. Now, I know as we begin this morning, um, there are people here who have had abortions. There are people here who have considered abortions. There are people here who know people who have had abortions. Uh, this is a topic that can cause great shame and great guilt. Uh, and that is not our goal tonight, today. I want you to know that our, our goal is not to heap condemnation, um, but rather our hope is that through God's word, we would see the ugliness of sin that is in this world and that we would see the hope and the grace of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In our culture today, it is said that a woman ought to be able to do whatever she wants with her body. And thus, if she wants to have an abortion, then that is her right. And if we deny that, we are now being told that we are bigots and we are accused of discrimination. And culture will say that the, the child, the unborn child, is not a person, and thus that is the means in which they can justify the means of, of killing the unborn child. Now, interestingly, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and I learned about uh, the movement, the right of nature. Have you heard of that? The right of nature movement. It is taking place all throughout America, and it exists in other parts of the world. Uh, people are advocating that nature ought to be given the rights of personhood, meaning lakes, mountains, flowers, trees ought to be given the very rights that you and I have. Lake Erie, earlier this year, was given those rights. Um, and what I find is interesting, well, and here's a quote, the right of nature acknowledges that nature in all of its life forms has the right to exist, persist, maintain, and regenerate its vital cycles. Now, I'm all for nature. I mean, if you know, we love hiking, we love camping, we love, we love Washington and the Northwest because of this. But I find it ironic that we would want to give mountains and lakes the identity of personhood and the rights that would entail with that and yet deny the beating heart of a fetus within a woman. So the, the abortion crisis is very real here in America. It is said that roughly one child is aborted every 30 seconds in this world, and thus by the end of this sermon, there will be roughly 90 children who have died. I mean, we can't stay neutral on an issue like this. We can't avoid an issue like this. Um, so my hope is that as we look at God's word today, that we just be in horror 
of the sin. Not just the sin out there, but the sin that entails, that, that's in each and every person. The sin that we have. But that we'd also be filled with hope and comfort because ultimately of uh, the presence, the judgment, and the grace of God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be looking in Genesis 4. And I know that many of us are aware of the creation story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There we see that God creates um, all of creation in six days. We are told that he has made man in his image, has placed them in a garden where they are to enjoy his presence and his blessings. They are to multiply, meaning to have children, to fill the earth, and they are to work the ground so that they would extend this garden, this place of God's presence. So ultimately, the purpose is, is that all of humanity, his image bearers, would fill the earth as they extend the rule of God, and they worship, and, then they, and they enjoy God. But then we know we come to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve, they sin, they reject God, and the consequence of that is that they're now outside the garden. That's where we're picking up today. We're now going to be looking at a picture of what is humanity now that we are fallen, now that we are corrupted by sin. And uh, I want us to ask two questions. Number one, what do we learn about humanity? Number two, what do we learn about God? So that's what we're going to do. So I want to go ahead and encourage you to now stand, and we're going to read Genesis 4, 1 through 16. We stand here at the reading of God's word because we believe it comes with the full authority and inspiration of God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke, spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground and from your, your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to me, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you give grace today. Father, I pray that you would keep me from saying anything that would not be helpful. I pray that you protect those who are here in the things that they hear, that your word may not be distorted. 
And Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that we would cringe at the horror of our sin. Lord, I pray that we would be full of awe and hope and comfort as we consider your grace. Father, Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the grace you've given us in your son, Jesus. And I pray today that we would see the beauty of that, the hope of that. Lord, open up our eyes to our sinfulness. And I pray if anyone here is not, does not know you, that they would see today what your word says about sin. They would understand the judgment that is against all humanity because of sin. And I pray they would believe in you. Lord, be with us today in your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Question number one. What do we learn about humanity? Number one, we reject the rule of God. Our text begins with two brothers. Cain is the elder, Abel is the younger. Cain is a farmer, Abel is a shepherd. Verses three and four, they come to make uh, a sacrifice to God. Cain brings an offering of grain from the ground, whereas Abel brings the firstborn sheep of his flock. In verse four, we see Abel's offering is accepted, while Cain's offering is rejected. Why? Why is Cain's offering rejected? Some have said, well, because it's not a blood offering. That seems a bit of a stretch, and there's no textual support for that at all. Others have said, well, it's because Abel's offering was more costly. After all, it's described as the firstborn, and it contains the fat portions. That's a possibility, um, but I think it's best to let Scripture interpret Scripture where possible. And in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we're actually told why. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, this is what we read. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. So here's the question. Why was Cain's rejected? Because Abel's offering was done in faith whereas Cain's was not. Cain, or Abel, came as a means or to worship God, where Cain came out of duty. Cain's offering is ultimately rejected because Cain's heart had rejected God. He didn't want to come and worship God. And this is evidence when we make our way through, and in verse 5, we see Cain's face has become, or he's become angry, and his face has fallen. The words very angry mean that his heart was burning with anger. He was indignant. After all, nothing makes someone more angry than hearing that they don't measure up, that they're not good enough, that they're not acceptable. I mean, you can imagine the conversation that Cain has within himself. Who are you to question me? Who are you to judge me? How dare you question my motives? I mean, can you picture that? Can you sense the the frustration welling up within him. So let's ponder that for a moment. Based upon what we know from the text, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 4, who is this God that would question the motives of Cain, that would judge him? So far in Genesis, we see that God is the creator and sustainer of all creation. He is the supreme ruler of all things, and yet he is also generous. He created humanity that they would be in his image, that they would share in his rule, and that they would enjoy his blessing, um, that they would enjoy his blessings. We've already seen that he's the ultimate judge, 
In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, God enters into the garden where not only he punishes Adam, Eve, but also Satan, and also the ground. For his rule extends over all the cosmos. So when Cain is angry at God, he's rejecting him as ruler, as king, and as judge, and he's rejecting the fact that he's made in the image of God, and thus his life is to be lived for the honor and the glory of God. Rather than living that way, just as Adam and Eve sinned by thinking they knew better than God, and that God was holding out on them, so now also Cain shows that he thinks he should be able to live however he wants also. And I hope you see this. What Cain is doing is no different than what we do, what characterizes humanity. Look at our culture today. It takes every opportunity to deny the existence of the one true God and justify whatever actions it is that we want to take. Humanity itself says we ought to live the way we want. Who are you to question me? And so if Cain rejects the rule of God, who does rule Cain? What rules the heart of humanity? Brings us to the next point where, from the text, I think we see that we are ruled by sin. Just as God questioned Adam and Eve, so now when Cain sins, God enters into the garden in verse 6 and begins to question. And in verse 7, for the first time in the Bible, we come across the word sin. And notice what we learn about sin. It says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, meaning it's opposed to the way that you were created. But you must rule over it. Now, interestingly, in Genesis 3, we see that the serpent slithers into the garden where he brings temptation. But now in Genesis 4, we see that the temptation, the sin, is already at the door of man's heart. It's personified as a monster that lies in the dark waiting to kill. Its desire is to have dominion over man. The rebellious attitude of Satan has now gained access to the very nature of man. One author said this, sin has bonded itself onto Cain's motives, ideas, and attitudes. It moves him, speaks to him, and it wants to master him. Just think about that. Now, you must realize what we're reading of Cain is true of all humanity. The sin that has bonded itself to Cain has also bonded, us, bonded itself to us, and it rules over our every thoughts and over our action. This is why when we come into the New Testament and we look at like what Paul says in Romans, like in Romans 6.20, he will say, before salvation, we are slaves to sin. So what does that mean that we are slaves to sin? What effect does that have on our life? Does sin make us do things that we don't want to? So for that, we'll go to the next point. We pursue the love of self. Look at verse 8. Cain speaks to his brother Abel. Just imagine what he's saying. He's probably inviting him out to the field where there's no one else. And it's there that he strikes him down. He kills him. Now why? Why does he kill him? Again, it's best to look at what the scriptures say. And again, in the New Testament, looking back on this, inspired by the Spirit, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, this is what we read. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, meaning Satan, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Here we go. Because his own deeds were evil 
and his brothers righteous. So why did Cain murder Abel? Well, we're told now he's of the evil one. Remember, to reject God, to reject God as our king, is to then align ourselves with the other kingdom, which would be the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. But that's not necessarily the reason that's given. That's understanding now where Cain lives in the sense of his identity in a kingdom. But we're told that the reason that he kills his brothers because his deeds are evil. And of course, where do our deeds come from? Where do our actions come from? Where do our thoughts come from? Where do our motives come from? They come from the heart. They come from within. See, Cain kills Abel because he has a wicked heart. So if that's true, he has this wicked heart, then why would I say that Cain kills Abel because he pursues the love of self? Look at I want us to turn to Romans 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn all the way to Romans 1. In Romans 1, Paul describes the condition of sinful humanity. And his point is that because of sin, we now live contrary to the very way in which God created. But we don't live contrary to God in a begrudging manner. That's what we're going to see. It's not that we secretly desire God, but somehow sin has enslaved us and is forcing us against our will to do things we don't want to do. Paul's going to show that we love our sin, we love rejecting God, and we love living how we want. In fact, let me just, let me just skim a few verses here. If you look at verse 24, it says, God gave us up to the lusts of our heart. Think about the words there. Verse 27, God gave us up to our dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave us up to our debased mind. Of course, the word debased would, would refer to the, the way that we think contrary to that of God. Our lusts, our passions. This is what we've been given up to. Now, the, what, what do the words give up mean? Well, I, think, I think it was R.C. Sproul. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contribute it to him because that's who I think said this in a book. He said, the words give up remind us like when you're walking a dog and your dog is on a leash and all of a sudden a squirrel appears and what does your dog do? It lunges at the squirrel. It wants nothing more than to chase that squirrel, treat it up, whatever it wants to do. And the only thing that restrains that dog is you holding on to the leash. But now what happens if you let go of the leash? What happens if you give the leash up? Will the dog do what he doesn't want to do or will he do what he wants to do? He will do exactly what he wants to do. And so as we let go of the leash and the dog runs, so the text is letting us know this is what God has done. He's in a sense, let us go. In our sinfulness, he says, okay, I let you go to your lusts, to your passions, to your debased mind, so that you are going to do exactly what you want to do. So again, there is nothing in the text that says we are being forced against our will. When we sin, we sin because this is exactly what we want to do from our heart. And notice then, as we come down to Romans chapter 1, verse 29, what is it that we want to do? It says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Maliciousness, they're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Just remember that one. For if you can't remember, just we invent evil. Disobedient to parents, 
foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, this text is not for us to sit here and point at, at culture and say, this is what's wrong with you. This is meant for us to look at all of humanity, ourselves included, and say, this is the condition of our hearts apart from the grace of God. This text explains all of sinful humanity. Why do we fight? Why is there racism, which we looked at last week? Why is there war? Why do we steal? Why do we cheat? Why do marriages break? Why do we rebel against authorities? Why do we grumble? Why do we gossip? Why do we slumber? Slumber? Slander. Why are we slumbering, too? Um, Why are there relatives that we don't speak to? Why is there abortion? It's because of our sinful hearts. Cain wanted to kill his brother. It pleased Cain to rid the world of the righteous person who reminded him of his sin. And when God questioned him, he arrogantly responds, am I my brother's keeper? So now how does, how does all this relate then to abortion? Well, think about it. The abortion crisis we're facing in this world is the natural outworking of a sinful heart. It's the natural outworking. While what I'm about to say is not true of all women who have had abortions, it is true of some, and it doesn't take you very long on the, on the internet to find examples like this. Many women have called the baby within them a parasite, one that does not belong, as if it's an alien or stranger. Now, women will commit abortions for, for many reasons. Shame, guilt, pain, trauma, many, many reasons. But also, there are times they simply do it because they just don't want a baby. They don't want the inconvenience. They don't want to be pregnant. They don't want to be a mother. They say if a man can have sex without consequences, then should not a woman also be able to do the same? And abortion is, of course, justified because a woman ought to have full authority over her body, even if it means killing an unborn child. And of course, that is the primary means in which the pro-choice position continually makes its way forward is by denying the personhood of an unborn child. Now, in response to Louisiana's new abortion ban, which states that a mother must first hear the fetal heart rate before deciding whether to have an abortion. I found it interesting, when the New York Times is writing about this, they purposely uh, used the words embryonic pulsing rather than fetal heart rate. The world will go to great extent to deny with its verbiage any type of personhood to an unborn child. You see, the answer the world gives for abortion is no different than Cain's. For killing his brother. Am I my brother's keeper in our arrogance? We're seeing the truth of Romans 132 lived out. Think about it. this is what Romans 132 says. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. In Romans 2, he talks about that. We actually have that law placed upon our hearts, but we suppress it. This is what they say about sinful humanity, about us, apart from God's grace. They do not only do them, meaning that which God does not decree, that which um, is evil, but we give approval to those who practice them. Do you not see that in this world? We not only invent evil, 
but then we approve of that evil. We not only create ways to murder, but then we say, that's okay. We approve of that. We affirm that. We legalize that. We live in a world that encourages and condones the killing of babies. That's the world that we live in. And so what do we do? How do we stand against that? I would encourage us, we are to take a stand against abortion. We must actively seek to protect the unborn child. But we must also realize that we continually, that we live in a world that is going to continually create sin, new ways to do evil, and justify its sin. So if that's true, then we might begin asking questions like, well, do we even have a chance then? What's our, what's our hope in protecting the unborn? Is this a pointless uphill battle? Can we gain any ground? Now, to answer those questions, I would say we need to go to our next question. We've looked at humanity and what we've learned there apart from God's grace. So what do we learn about God here in Genesis 4? Number one, we see that God sees all that humanity does. Notice in verse 6, God comes to Cain. Cain's not pursuing God. Cain's not looking for God, but God comes to him. Now, in Genesis 1, we're told that God creates the heavens and the earth. We're told that he fills the, the night sky with stars. We're told that he places the sun and the moon. In Isaiah 40, we're told that God rules over the cosmos, and he sits on a throne above the circle, and it says, in a very flattering way, that we are like grasshoppers below God showing our insignificance to this great God who rules over the entire cosmos. And in the same time, while God rules over every inch of the world, we're also told and we see all throughout Scripture that God knows the very happenings of earth, and not just over a certain part, but over every inch of earth. He knows every person and sees the desires and motives of every heart. Just as God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and questioned them, so now he's with Cain. He sees him and he questions him. Now, again, we must understand there is no religion like Christianity in which there is a God who is transcendent, supremely transcendent, rules over all things, and yet is also so imminent, so near to us that he's with us and he knows us and relates to us and walks with us. God has made us in his image that we would be in relationship with him. And what's amazing, even though we reject him, even though we reject the rule, even though we create and invent ways to sin and to abhor his glory, he pursues us. Do you know that God pursues you? Do you know that he sees you? Do you know that he sees you at all times? And while that can feel scary in one sense, going, oh, he sees everything I do, it also ought to be a comfort. He's always with us. He sees, he knows. In all the chaos of the world, when we say, does God know? He's saying from cover to cover, yes, he does know. He sees all things, and he is with us. In Psalm 139, this is what we read in verses 7 to 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Let us not think that God is ignorant of the things of this world. He's not unaware of pain. He's not unaware of suffering. He's not unaware of injustices or the abortion crisis in this world. Look at verse 10. 
back in Genesis 4. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. There is not one baby that is aborted whose blood does not cry out to God. Do you know that? There's not one that goes unnoticed. He is the one who forms every child in the womb. In Psalm 72, this is what we read. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Now, just real quick, the fact that it's talking about precious is their blood means that he doesn't always save them in the means that we want them to save, be saved, right? But the fact that they die doesn't mean that they're any less precious to him. So we can take comfort that God is very aware of all things in this world. Now, you might respond, though, and say, well, hold on. If you say God sees all things, knows all things, is present in all places, then why does he not act? Well, let us be careful with thinking that God must act in the way we think he must act, and if he does not do so, then he is not acting. Does that make sense? We are not God. He is not accountable to us. We do not always understand his means and why he accomplishes things the way he does. When you read through the story of Israel in the Old Testament, there's times you're just sitting there going, this is looking bad. This is looking really bad. Where is God in all this? And then all of a sudden, later chapters or centuries later as we move through the story, we see how God is working and he's bringing his people into his presence. So let us not think that God is not acting because we don't see how he's acting. That would place us in the position of God, God in the position of man, and he would be accountable to us, which that would be a place no one wants to be. So next we see, though, God does see all things, and also he is a righteous judge who must punish sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, God punished them. He sends them out of the garden. When Cain sinned, we see in verses 11, 11 and 12 that God punished him. He makes him a wanderer on earth. Now, it's interesting. Notice how it talks about he's being moved further away from Eden. Very likely, as they're outside the garden, as, Cain, as Adam and Eve went outside the garden, they were probably outside the garden. Not like miles away. They were outside the presence of of God, just but they could look at the gates. The angel is there, is guarding the, the way in. But now we are told that he has moved further away. He goes to a place called Nod, which Nod Nod means wanderer. And so now we have that Cain is going to suffer the effects of his sin. He will be alienated, pushed further away from the very presence and blessings of God. To which Cain responds in verse thirteen: "My punishment is greater than I can bear." He has no idea. Hear this, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go and cost you more than you wanted. I don't remember whoever first said that, but I do think it's very, very helpful. Sin will always take you further than you wanted and cost you more than you ever wanted. Ultimately, the consequence of rejecting God and pursuing the love of self is what the Bible says, eternal judgment in hell. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say all roads lead to heaven. Nowhere do we see that it is very clear that the road is very wide that leads to destruction so remember when we when we come back cain's offering is rejected abel's is accepted let us not think that everything we do must be accepted by god 
let us see that God must be approached in a particular way. We do not set the rules for how we approach God. He does. And we'll walk through that all throughout the Old Testament, ultimately culminating through who? Through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the only way in which we come to God is through Jesus, the Son, who has actually come to us. We do not set the parameters and the rules in which we come to God. What we learn in this passage is that God has to be approached in a particular way. So not all roads lead to heaven. There is one road. And we're told, though, that there is a very wide road, the road of humanity, the road of culture, that leads to hell, to destruction. And in Revelation 20, verse 15, we read, and it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. The Bible does not pretend to make judgment a happy place. Does not pretend to talk about universalism or, or not universalism. Some other word that blanks at the moment. Annihilationism, that when we die, we simply die. Or there is a punishment or there is a blessing. And what we see is that Cain is punished, ultimately foreshadowing the punishment that everyone will receive. Estranged from the blessings of God. Hear this. Every sin is punished. Um, while not immediately, every sin will be punished, though. So what is our hope? If this is the case, if this is humanity, we see that we have rejected God, we've become our own ruler, sin rules over us, we do what we want, we pursue our own self-love, which means we invent evil, we create ways of rejecting the glory of God and, and creating our own glory, and we see, though, that God sees all things, which means he sees every person, and he's a righteous judge, therefore we're all guilty, and we know, then, the guilt, that the, the judgment, then, is destruction. What hope is there? What word is there that humanity needs as at this moment and what we then see in our last point is that God gives grace that we'd be forgiven verse 15 is just baffling to me when you look at it look at verse 15 maybe it's better to start with 13 where Cain says my punishment is greater than I can bear I mean I've rejected you I haven't really want to worship you I don't I don't love you but I still want all your blessings to which then we come into verse 15. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. God gives grace to Cain. Like that, that just baffles me. He's rejected God in every way. Deserves punishment. Deserves hell. And yet God gives grace. And yet it's that fact that we have hope also. Because ultimately what we do see is that God does give grace. Now how can he give grace? How can he not punish if he's a just judge? How can he not sentence Cain to eternal damnation at that very moment if he's righteous? Well, because what we know is thousands of years later from the time of Cain, there will be another righteous shepherd that will appear. And he will also be killed unjustly. And who is this righteous shepherd who's killed in injustice? It's Jesus, the Son of God. He comes in this world that he would stand in our place on a cross to bring about the forgiveness of sins. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
This is one of my favorite passages. It's called The Great Exchange. For our sake, God made him to be sin, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what happens is God, God makes Jesus to be sin so that we who are sinful would be righteous. So he takes our sin, pays the penalty for it on the cross, and in return he gives us his righteousness. So I said earlier, every sin is punished. Every sin must be punished. It will either be punished in the death of Jesus on the cross, or you will pay the penalty in an eternity in hell. Those are the options. Every sin is punished. The question is, will it be at the cross in Christ, or will we reject Jesus, and will we pay that cost? I want you to know that there's no sin that we can commit that God will not forgive if we come to him in repentance. That is the grace of our God. That when Christ died, he died so that all would be forgiven who come to him. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid in the full price of every sin. His, his blood is sufficient to cover whatever the sin is. When you talk to people, especially those who wrestle with great shame and great guilt. They will say things like, there's no way God can forgive this. They're saying this sin, this guilt, this whatever I've done is larger than the grace of God. And the whole Bible testifies, no. The blood of Christ is greater. And it is sufficient to bring about the forgiveness of anyone, whether you've lied, cheated, stolen, lusted, slandered, or aborted a baby, there is grace in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And this is why, when we come to Hebrews chapter 12, this is a, this is a beautiful verse when thinking about chapter 4 in Genesis. This is Hebrews 12, 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now remember, God says, the blood of Abel cries out to me. What does it cry out? Guilty. Cain, you're guilty. You killed your brother Abel. But there's another righteous shepherd who came. And by his blood, his blood cries out something different for those who believe in him. It cries out, innocent, declared righteous. That's the good news of the gospel. While Abel's blood cries out, guilty, because he has no means of providing any forgiveness, Jesus came, the righteous Son of God, that we who believe in him, his blood would cleanse us. And what we read in Isaiah chapter 1, I think it's verse 18, would make us as white as snow, which is why we all should pray for snow. So we're reminded of that verse. See, there's biblical reasons for snow, people. We need more snow. Um, you'll hear that anytime if you ever want to talk about snow, if you ever want to pray uh, with me, we can pray for snow together. Just so you know, we can be one just like that. Um, but think about this. The only thing that can remove the shame and the guilt of our sin is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the Bible. That's what God has done for us. If you believe in Jesus, you're declared righteous and justified. This is the grace that the world needs. More than anything, what you need what the world needs, what our politician needs, it's to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We need to know and experience the forgiveness 
of God. We need to experience the new heart that give, God gives us. That inclines us to no longer invent ways to do evil, but to obey God in righteousness. So will America ever be free of abortion? I mean, I, I, I'm probably not. We can say we don't know, but I'll, I'll just lean towards probably not. But the good news is our God sees and knows every baby that is formed in the womb. There is none that has died that he's not aware of, and he will bring about justice. Whether it happens on the cross or on judgment day, we can take comfort in the goodness and the righteousness of our God. We ought to be a people that proclaim this hope. We'll be a people that stand up for humanity, for the sake that we know that we're made in the image of God and every life has value. And let us remember that our hope is not that America becomes the kingdom of God, because that's not going to happen, because it's not the kingdom of God. But rather, we're, our hope is in that one day Christ does return. And on that day, he will gather all who have rejected him. He will gather all who have spurned his glory. And they will be punished. And all the kingdoms of the world will be washed away. And he will establish his kingdom on a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no sin. Where we will be made in the likeness of Christ. We will see him as he is because in 1 John 3 it says we will be made like him. We won't be him in the sense that we're God, but we'll be like him and that we'll be righteous, we'll be holy, we'll be perfect, we'll share in his glory. We will no longer invent ways to, to do evil, but we will naturally do that which honors God. We will please one another. We will love one another. Cemeteries will be a thing of the past. Abortions will never be talked about. They will not occur. It will be a place in which God's rule and blessing reigns supreme and perfect, and we will enjoy him there. That is our hope. That is what Christ has promised. And we ought to testify of that today. We ought to stand up for the unborn. We ought to, uh, to live in a way that protects the poor, the orphan, the needy, those who do not have rights. And yet, at the same time, realize that we live in a sinful world, so our supreme hope is in God through his son Christ who promises that one day that new heavens and new earth is coming. And we will not understand all the things that happen in this world, but we can know from scripture, his, God's testimony, that he does rule supreme. And there is a day coming where all the kingdoms of, the, kingdoms of this world will come to an end. That is the guarantee we have in scripture. And now we are to be a people, a, a light in this world communicating living out the hope that we have because of Christ. So let us pray, and then we'll take communion. Our Father, our Father, we come to you now. We thank you for the grace that you give us. We thank you that your grace is sufficient to bring about forgiveness of sins to all people, to all who believe in you, no matter what sin it is that we have committed. There is no sin that is greater than your the sufficiency of your son's blood. Lord, we know that if we come to you, if we bow our knees before you, if we repent of our sins, there is grace and there is forgiveness. And Lord, we praise you for that. I pray that every person in this room would know that. I pray that is the message that we take out of this room, the message of hope, the message of grace, the message of forgiveness. 
I pray we live out that truth. And Lord, as we stand for those who are unable to stand for themselves, Lord, may we do so in a way that honors you, in a way that loves others. But may our hope be that we know that one day the kingdoms of this world will be wiped away and that your kingdom will alone stand. And in that kingdom, life will reign and your blessings will come about to all people. Father, we love you and we praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.